and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin Westlander, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Today, we are focusing on what we'd like our adult colleagues to know about treating infections in our tiniest and cutest patients, children. We have two guests today. Dr. Bio is a clinical pharmacist specialist in pediatric antimicrobial stewardship at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford in Palo Alto, California. Her research inc interests include evaluating antimicrobial stewardship interventions through quality improvement projects, improving antimicrobial dosing regimens based on pharmacokinetics, and reducing patient exposure to unnecessary antimicrobials. Hello, Erin. And our other guest is Dr. Yu, is a pediatric infectious diseases pharmacist at Doran Becker Children's Hospital, which is associated with OHSU Healthcare in Portland, Oregon. Her research in interests include antimicrobial stewardship, implementation of clinical practice guidelines, and antimicrobial uses usage metrics. Hello, Erin. Hello. So we'll start off with some reassurance for our adult counterparts. We hear a lot of adult pharmacists that they are scared to treat children. So let's start with Laura. What pearls of advice do you have for them? Thanks, Erin. So let's go ahead and get started with uh, reassuring our colleagues and also to thank them and for that hesitation in agreeing that children are not just small adults. Diana and I are here to hopefully quell those fears with some of our insights. So some of the major differences that impact the care of children uh, with infectious diseases include their pharmacokinetic differences compared to adults and some of the logistical issues such as dosage formulation. These differences are especially apparent when we're managing infections in the neonatal patient population. Not only are there pharmacokinetic differences, but also the types of infections we see and the pathogens in neonates are different. We just have to deal with pharmacokinetic differences and oftentimes extrapolate adult data to our children when we have limited pediatric data. I feel like pharmacists could feel daunted about some of the pharmacokinetic issues in pediatric patients, but I think we're all pretty equipped with good pharmacokinetic principles to try to explain some of these issues. So one thing that always comes up, I feel like in my discussion with adult con um, colleagues is like dosing of genomycin in neonates, because sometimes it gets mistaken for high dose extended interval approach, but it's really just kind of like conventional dosing. Um, babies at the point in the age are basically kind of like how the joke goes. They're like basically little bags of water. So that means you just have to give them a higher dose to try to counteract that volume distribution. Also, unfortunately, at this age, just because they're little babies, their kidneys aren't necessarily as developed as we would like, so their kidney clearance isn't as good. So instead of doing Q8 hours, which we usually do in an older patient, we really have to give them every 24 hours to allow for genomycin clearance. But as we know, as kids get older, they get rocking kidney function and rocking liver function, and they also have a little less lean weight. So that means a lot of the medications that we end up giving them just need to be higher dosages. So for example, vancomycin needs to be dosed at 50 to 60 per kilo per day in comparison to adult patient who needs to be dosed at 30 to 40 per kilo per day to kind of get that similar AUC that we're looking for. And voriconazole is a really extreme example in which we need to dose it about 18 per kilo per day in comparison to the eight per kilo per day that we give to adult patients to get a similar exposure. 
Great points, Diana. Yeah. Additionally, outside of these pharmacokinetic differences and our neonatal patient population requiring some special attention, generally speaking, we have access to and can deliver the same arsenal of antimicrobials to kids as adults. We're also fortunate that our kids are fairly resilient and mostly do well, despite our preference and use of oral antibiotics for indications like osteomyelitis, when adults would possibly stick with parenteral or IV therapy. Oral antibiotic use isn't always straightforward though, since there's again, palliability issues, dose volumes, et cetera, that all need to be considered. I agree. It's almost never the case that we can't give an antibiotic, except logistically we may run into issues. An example is the back pocket oral treatment for resistant urinary tract infection, phosphomycin. It comes as an oral powder packet, which can make dose extrapolation difficult. Unlike the assumption that we are working in peats is all about bubbles and dinosaurs, which is true. What are some common misconceptions about using antimicrobials in children that we can myth bust? Let's go back and start with Laura. Great question, Erin, thanks. Yeah, so there are definitely common misconceptions using antimicrobials in children. I like to bucket these into two different groups. Uh, it's either related to the pharmacokinetic or PK differences in children, or the fact that we have a developing body and these antimicrobials may be at higher risk in that, um, in that body. So in the first bucket, I think some great examples are sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, I'm just going to say trim sulfa, and also ceftriaxone. These agents are highly protein bound, which is especially problematic in neonates and young children because they have reduced protein binding capacity compared to children and adults. This is due to the lower amount of circulation plasma protein binders and competition with higher concentrations of molecules such as bilirubin and free fatty acids. However, these antibiotics aren't absolutely contraindicated in neonates and young infants, despite the package insert statement that trim sulfa is contraindicated in infants less than two months of age. We have definitely encountered the need for using trim sulfa in neonates for PJP prophylaxis, and it's currently recommended by the CDC in patients as young as one month of age. The other example, ceftriaxone, is another uh, good one because of its highly protein uh, bound as well. Historically, we avoided it and, and it was contraindicated in neonates. However, due to the recent cefotaxime shortage, we've had to reevaluate that because cefotaxime, it was our go-to third-generation cephalus born for neonates with sepsis. We had to identify alternatives, including ceftazidime or even gentamicin. This shortage fortunately allowed us the opportunity to reevaluate ceftriaxone's placent therapy, especially given the labeling updates that clarified it's only contraindicated in neonates with hyperbilirubinemia specifically, or premature neonates less than 41 weeks post-menstrual age. As a result, there are a few institutions out there who recommend ceftriaxone for a short 48-hour rule-out course in that non-hyperbilirubinemic full-term neonate, since the risks are low with short exposure. Unfortunately, however, ceftriaxone does come with an additional concern regarding calcium-containing products, and it's contraindicated in neonates receiving those types of solutions, such as TPN. This is due to reports that occurred back in 2007, uh, reports of fatalities uh, that were reported to the FDA. So unfortunately, when considering ceftriaxone, there are multiple variables and factors that need to be taken into account for that neonate, such as their postmenstrual age, total 
hyper, uh, total bilirubin and nutritional status, meaning whether or not they're on TPN. Most neonates in the NICU, therefore, you can imagine cannot meet those criteria, but outside the NICU, a neonate presenting for rule out sepsis from the community may, may actually meet that criteria and subtraction can be considered for a short course. I'm really glad that we're talking about this um, at our institution. We also try to adopt usage of ceftriaxone in full-term neonates at our night hopper Billy. And it was really a deeply grained concept that a lot of people have adopted. And so it took a lot of education to try to get people to accept this. Um, and so it's really important for people to understand what the pathophysiology of the concern for using something like trimsulfa and subtriaxone in neonates is, because the reality is, is that we can probably safely use a lot of these medications in them, um, but we just need to kind of do that education and just have that plug for it. I'm sure this probably derails the conversation just a tiny bit, but just as a plug for antimicrobial stewardship and using more narrow spectrum agents, uh, it's really important to think about this, like even it's a slight change from cefotaxime to ceftazidine, uh, there was actually an observational study um, that was looking at the NICU population at the University of Chicago, in which they were looking at pre and post um, adverse effects with this change. And what their data said, it suggested an increase of necrotizin enterocolitis and potentially an increase of late onset sepsis and multi-drug resistant organism acquisition in this tiny population. So I think it just continues to highlight the importance of being able to use ceftriaxo in scenarios where it's warranted. Great. Yeah, I agree. There are some clear pharmacokinetic differences. So let's talk about the second bucket, which is safety concerns, and what myths can we bust there? Yeah, the safety concerns are definitely something, again, to talk about as uh, the second bucket revolving around the developing child's body. And so two great examples there are the teeth staining from tetracycline antibiotics and arthropathies in weight-bearing joints from fluoroquinolone antibiotics. Historically, the use of tetracycline specifically was contraindicated due to permanent dental discoloration in children younger than eight years. However, that was based on tetracycline's link to tooth staining. When doxycycline came to market, it got slapped with the same warning label. Fortunately, recent studies of children exposed to doxycycline for short courses did not observe that dental staining, which fortunately resulted in an update in the AAP's stance on the use of doxycycline to, re to recommend it in children less than eight years of age as long as it's for short durations. However, they define short duration of up to 21 days. Of course, that's one appropriate. Also, as Laura alluded to, the usage of fluoroquinolones of children has been thought to be a no-no in the past few decades. Um, and we know that there is a blanket precautionary usage statement um, in Lexicomp and Micromedics, for example, for patients under 18 years of age. This recommendation was from the observation of cartilage damage and weight-bearing joints in animal models with the most famous being beagle puppies of four to 12 months of age and, um, and several other animals as well. And because of this observation um, and especially in developing animals, there was a huge concern that this could also occur in developing children. So it was recommended to avoid this in class of antibiotics in kids overall. The reality is it's quite safe. Um, there are a handful of observational cohort studies that have shown safety in children. Yes, one of the more common adverse effects is joint pain, but true radiological proven arthropathy is really rare in kids less than 18 years of age. 
To be totally honest, I kind of like this rumor because it ensures that children are being prescribed ciprofloxacin and levofloxacin when they really need it. Like for, expo uh, for example, if they got exposed to anthrax, because really children are still at the same risk for adverse effects the same way adults are. So for example, they still can get C. diff infections and arrhythmias. And so we just wanna make sure that we can get the most narrow spectrum antibiotic for our patients. Those are great examples, thanks. You can consider these myths busted. <laughs> Another topic we would love our adult colleagues to consider is incorporating pediatrics into system-wide infectious diseases and stewardship. We all work in some capacity as a part of a larger hospital or healthcare system. Diana, what advice would you like the adult side to consider when making infection and antimicrobial decisions and protocols? Oh man, this always seems to be a big issue to me, I think. Oftentimes, um, especially from a pediatric hospital with an adult hospital, I feel like pediatrics always gets overlooked with hospital initiatives, um, but I know it's not on purpose. And so we just wanna make sure that we're always involved. Um, so I think one of the most effective things to do is to have pediatric providers, be it general pediatricians or pediatric infectious diseases physicians or even pharmacists sitting at the table, especially at the antimicrobial subcommittee of your PNT. I think it gives them the opportunity to hear about protocols and formulary additions and to ask questions to see if it can be modified to include pediatric patients. And if not, maybe they can actually take this initiative to their pediatric colleagues and try to develop their own protocol altogether. If you have an antimicrobial stewardship committee, it's also important to have both adult and pediatric group mixed, I think, since you'll likely be utilizing the same data analysts and microbiologists and infection preventionists. Sometimes you might be at a smaller institution in which you may not necessarily have a dedicated pediatric person. So if you can at least work with your pharmacy informatics and your pharmacy purchasing group to add something like a, what about the children list to their checklist and looking at medications, this actually will hopefully kind of like encourage them to make sure that they have additional formulations like suspensions that are appropriate for children. And then also having appropriate pediatric dilutions and dosing buttons so they don't necessarily get overlooked. Because I know that for some people out there, it's an unfortunate surprise sometimes when you're trying to put in an order for a patient and there's just an adult build and not a pediatric build, even though we know these medications are approved for children. Great recommendations, Diana. Certainly need a seat at the table. Even at a standalone children's hospital, we encounter scenarios where it is important that our pediatric and adult services align as well. Believe it or not, our uh, microbiology, virology, and clinical lab are all shared services between Packard and Stanford. Historically, there had been decisions made to change the way results were being reported in our system for antibiotic susceptibility testing, for example. And also the comments that were embedded within the results, those were changed as well without our PEDS ID group being engaged. Our division didn't learn about these changes until they were alive, so didn't really like those surprises. We were fortunate now that we actually have a group called the Integrated Infectious Disease Committee, which is composed of members from the micro lab, the virology lab, even infection prevention and control, and of course, the infectious diseases division. This committee is actually responsible for evaluating the antibiogram on an annual basis, and also just cross-sharing of information with these divisions. What's great is this actually meets a Joint Commission accreditation standard for ASP, so it has served quite a few benefits to our hospital. 
That was really great advice. Um, there are definitely logistical concerns um, when developing hospital or system-wide decisions um, in regards to pediatrics. I think a great resource to remember is that often within your hospital or health system, you do have pediatric um, pharmacy colleagues. Uh, here's an example of something that happened recently here. Uh, there was an emergency department in our health system a few hours away that needed help getting HIV post-exposure prophylaxis for a child. So at the Children's Hospital, of course, we keep multiple formulations for this need, such as chewable or packets of raltegravir, um, but no other pharmacies in that area had those. So we were able to confirm dosing, regimen, and then just courier the supplies out to um, the pharmacy since it wasn't stocked anywhere in the city. So one of the biggest resources I would say is your pediatric pharmacist colleagues, um, even within the health system, don't forget that they're there. So for, um, for you two, what, other, what are some other resources for treating pediatric patients that adult pharmacists can refer to when they come across a pediatric patient? Yeah, that's a great example, Erin, and, and a great question. So aside from reaching out to your colleagues, we definitely have a few tertiary resources at our fingertips. Uh, I like to go to the Red Book. It's a textbook by the American Academy of Pediatrics, or AAP. Uh, they have a committee of infectious diseases that publishes this book. And it's a comprehensive resource. It includes immunizations, not only just infectious diseases, and even antimicrobial dosing. It's published every three years, but it's also available online and in print um, if your library subscribes to it. A few key points though on this reference to uh, keep in mind is that it includes diagnostic and management recommendations, but this is by specific pathogen. So it's not going to help you out uh, identify an empiric treatment option for an infectious condition like CAP or pneumonia. So fortunately for that, we do have evidence-based clinical practice guidelines from professional organizations, including IDSA and AAP. We actually have our own IDSA guideline for CAP, specifically for infants and children. This was a coordination between the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society, or PIDS, but most other IDSA guidelines, we're fortunate that they actually include a pediatric section as well most of the time. AAP does have quite a few pediatric guidelines for the management of infectious diseases, probably most notably the acute otitis media guideline, but there's even other guidelines such as sinusitis, bronchiolitis, even UTI, but this is specific for two to 24 months of age. And then there's the, how do I dose this antimicrobial? So for that, pediatric lexicomp is a great reference uh, with citations. It's great to have the citations so that you can look to better understand where the recommendation is coming from. However, keep in mind, it doesn't matter how good your weight-based dose calculation is and make per kg, unless you can get that dose to the patient, doesn't matter. So keeping that in mind, we need to evaluate what dosage formulations are available, oral suspension or solution. And when that's not available, we have to rely on extemporaneous compounding. Fortunately, LexiComp does include a few recipes, but there's actually a whole nother reference for that. It's called the Extemporaneous Formulations for Pediatric, Geriatric, and Special Needs Patients. It's actually due for its fourth edition pub of publication this summer of 2021. Of course, as a standalone children's hospital, we have an inpatient and outpatient pharmacy that's equipped to compound these special formulations. But we have to keep in mind that not all outpatient pharmacies are, which is why I highly recommend keeping a list on hand of your local pharmacies that are capable of filling these special orders.
Those are all great references, Laura. Also, if you want to learn more about pediatric infectious diseases, if you have more time on your hands, there also are a number of other tertiary references for managing infectious diseases in pediatric patients. Some textbook favorites are Sarah Long's Principle and Practices of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, as well as Feigen and Cherry's Textbooks of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. This contains a little bit more about the organisms than the AAP Red Book and actually organizes things by disease state. So if you're interested in learning more about tick-borne illnesses or community-acquired pneumonia or intra-abdominal infections, it's a little bit more informative in comparison for as an empirical standpoint. Um, I think from my standpoint, um, long is a little bit more succinct in comparison to Feigen and Cherry. So go for that one if you have less time or try to read both if you have a lot of time on your hands. Um, speaking of less time and wanting a faster reference, I know that many pharmacists have their handy dandy Sandifer guide always at hand, but it's really important to remember that the recommendations in the Sanford are generally geared towards adult management. So just keep that in mind when you're looking at the recommendations. Similar in size to the Sandbook is the Nelson's Pocketbook of Antimicrobial Therapy, which is also developed by the AAP and is kind of a shorter version of the Nelson's Pediatric um, Book. And then um, also the Harriet Lane Handbook was developed by the Johns Hopkins Hospital. These were developed actually really for pediatric hospitalists. And so it has some shorthand for common infectious diseases. And some people refer to this for dosing recommendations in pediatrics. But to be honest, I think it's a little bit easier to lean on something like Micromedics as well as LexiComp. Um, also, what might be useful in a pinch is up to date. Um, there have lots of pediatric topics which are written by the experts in the area as well. Yes, there are many resources easily available for pediatric specific considerations. To wrap this episode up, the bottom line is really that there are almost no antimicrobials that we don't use in children. Um, make sure to look up the mig dosing, of course, but if it's optimal therapy, you should probably use it. Thank you so much, Erin and SIDP, for this opportunity to do some myth busting and to provide some resources for how to manage our children with infectious diseases. It's been an honor. Yes, thank you. It's been a lot of fun to talk with you, too. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I have been your host, Erin Westlander, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Laura Bio and Dr. Diana Yu. This episode was produced by Rachel Britt and Zara Kasamali Escobar. It was edited by Sasha Premaj, Julie Harding, and Corey Medler. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julianne Justo and Erin McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and in the future.